0: When people hear category design, they often think it needs to be venture-backed. When they hear community, they think you need to create content and build an audience first. And they also think both these things only apply to tech-scale startups. Then there's Sangram Vajra, who's done it completely different. He bootstrapped his way to building communities off of events that built his audience, that helped him build categories. And he's done it not just for a tech company, but also for a business service provider and a standalone paid community. And that's why he kicked off our first live event of the Category Thinkers community. Welcome to the Category Thinkers podcast, a feature of the Category Thinkers community. And while other category design podcasts and content stream pick the brains of category design experts and practitioners, we're different. We give you access. And in this episode, Sankrim joins our co-founders, John Ruggi, Mike Damphouse, a.k.a. Damp, and myself, Pablo Gonzalez, and our community for a live AMA where everybody got to pick his brain to uncover topics like his playbook for events that turn communities to audience to categories, why it's not too late to build a category and a community in your space, and the mindset and team it takes to do it. And if events are in your future in 2024, you may want to check out one of our sponsors, my company, Be BeTheStage.live. And we've seen companies spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to show up at events for the sole purpose of creating awareness and driving leads. But when your booth is one out of hundreds, prize wheels and merch just make you blend in with everyone else attendees feel this because they're trying to avoid eye contact with you while trying to figure out if their kid is going to like your giveaway which makes your presence at the show a misfire and the follow-up messages as generic as that branded thermos bethestage.live turns you into the talk of the trade show we convert your booth into a live podcast studio where attendees are invited to share their expertise the lights, cameras, and action make the onlookers stop in their tracks and get pulled in. Then we package up the content into something they can reshare while the event is still going, amplifying your on-site presence and creating a digital word-of-mouth engine. After the event, you're the one follow-up they're actually looking forward to. If you want help with that, check us out at bethestage.live. And if you need help radically differentiating or creating a point of view, check out our other sponsors the Category Design Advisors. You can check them out at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. They host these free weekly strategy sessions they call office hours, where any team that needs some help with category, whether it's trying to work out your POV with them, get some advice on how to align your team around category, just get a better understanding of where to get started, you can go to CategoryDesignAdvisors.com book their office hours, and hop on a call with Damp and John themselves. And finally, what we really like for you to do is to stop listening to the conversation and be a part of it. And you can do that by joining our free Slack community at CategoryThinkers.com. There, you're going to find over 600 other category-curious, category-capable, category-designers just like you, working out their POVs, sharing content, and helping each other succeed while getting access to events like this one that you are about to listen to. So without further ado, I'm going to let you tap into the genius of Sangram Vajra. Hope to see you at the next one. Go to CategoryThinkers.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the first Category Thinkers event of the year. I'm Pablo Gonzalez. I'm one of the co-founders of Category Thinkers. And my other co-founders are John Ruggie, who's here. He is a partner at Category Design Advisors and a category designer himself at large. John, you want to say hello?
1: Hey, good to see everyone here. This is our first event of uh, 2024. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. And uh, great to see you all here. Thanks for being with us.
0: And our other partner, he is also a other co-founder, also partner at Category Design Advisors, a category designer himself, Mike Damphouse, aka Damp. Say hello, Damp.
2: What's up, guys? I'm looking forward to this one. I woke up this morning to an email from Go To Market Partners, GTM Partners, Sangram's company, and it spurred a lot of thinking. So it's kind of kind of a a day that's going to be dedicated to this.
0: And the big fish that that you're here to talk to today, our guest of honor, has already designed one category, written a couple of best selling books, a proficient, expert community builder to a level that I, I greatly, greatly admire. The ever-talented all-star yeah. tennis player, Sangram Vazra. Yeah, Alexander. this
3: is the hardest part where you have to look straight in the face. And while every like somebody's telling you about you, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this. you know, you kind of start feeling like totally uncomfortable. So thank you for making me uncomfortable on that. But uh, excited for this. This is one of those topics that the more you talk the more you learn about it and the more you dig in you realize that uh, oh it sounds really cool and then you're like wait a minute am i really ready for this do i really want to do this so i'll be open book on everything that i got to do and got to you know play a part in it and i think as the market is changing i think it's even more important to think about it with a different lens what i might do or i could have done if i want to do it now like it is just a it's just a different economics of the business right now.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. So you, your email this morning got me thinking, right? And one thing that the email had in it was talking about, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the six go-to-market motions, Yeah. inbound-led, outbound-led, I got it in front of me, product-led, partner-led, event-led, and community-led. And what I think is interesting is, to me, the tactically those are all the tactics in the toolbox right or str- strategies and ultimately the the winning motion is when you win your category right category led growth and to me that's when all of those pieces come together and all those pieces meld together and the category strategy becomes the the ultimate platform that that you know rolls you into the winning the winning position. What are your thoughts there? I'm I'm really curious. It it, people talk a lot about tools and tactics, but ultimately, what what do you think? Category led growth, you know, how does that fit into your go to market concepts?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a really interesting one. So what Damp is mentioning about is the GTM Monday. We we drop a new research note every Monday, and. It, it, what's interesting about those, at, when we were creating those, and that came out of a lot of research, sending, uh, figuring out how, what companies are using, looking at ten Ks, looking at from companies like Salesforce to our own internal, you know, personal experiences, we found out that well, there is more than one way to go to market, and most of us are familiar with this inbound outbound as the most traditional way of going to market, right? That's how we most of us kind of landed with, oh, yeah, we can create more content. So let's do that. Or we have we have a sales background. So we want to start hiring more salespeople because that's that's all we would know. And when you really start looking into all the ones um, that you listed out, product-led or partner-led or event-led or community-led, the reason category-led didn't exist, i made sure it's not part of it is because of exactly the same reason you're mentioning. I think it's the outcome of all of it. So if you reverse engineer this, and say, all right, Salesforce is a category creator. So which of these go-to-market motions do Salesforce run? And I was at Salesforce. My last company or company before that, out got acquired by Salesforce and I spent a couple of years at Salesforce. And they clearly had a great community with their Dreamforce event. And and events, right? They know how to run events, and they not only created Dreamforce, but Salesforce One events that happens all over the world. They obviously have created inbound and outbound machines. There were floors of people making calls and teams that was creating content. They clearly understood partner led. They had the whole. Ad, they still have the whole App Exchange and ecosystem. So they kind of built all of it. So the best companies in the world, ultimately, the category leaders, ultimately will be able to and should be able to run all of these led motions. That's what the outcome would be. But where you start and how you get into the marketplace and how do you create a name for it so you earn the right to do all of it that ultimately leads to help you build a category is really the sequencing of it. And that that really is the art and science around it.
2: Yeah, I think I think that, you know, everybody looks at companies like Salesforce and it's like, yeah, sure. They, they you know, have killed it, right? They, they dominated their their category, but it's the startups that, you know, you're, you know, two founders with a credit card and then eventually 10 team members, and it's time to go pull this together. And they look at the challenge of pull, pulling together a community your events and whatever the strategy may be, and it's daunting. I mean, it, it is. It's, it's a big challenge. I mean, in fact, you know, Pablo and John and I have spent the past year doing exactly that building category thinkers and give give me sort of you know some words of wisdom of before i jump off the cliff what are the things i want to think about
3: (laughs) well first uh and foremost this isn't a project this is not a six-month initiative this is a commitment for for a way of thinking you wouldn't find a single company that have ever built a category where the founder or the CEO is not fully bought into it. Just doesn't exist. would not happen. You can go back and look at Salesforce. Can you imagine Mark Benioff not being Mark Benioff, not building Salesforce and doing anything? They, they stuck with the Dreamforce as part of it even today. Same thing with you look at HubSpot. HubSpot was an investor in Terminus in the early days when we started to build our own company. And they literally said, Brian and Dermesh said, you guys remind us of of themselves when they were starting off. But 10 years later, even though the inbound is no longer inbound, they have this whole flywheel now, but they still call it inbound. And I remember having this conversation with Brian and Dermesh, and I'm like, "Why, why are you still doing inbound? And he made a comment that I'll never forget. This is specifically Brian. Brian said that, you know, he thinks about the fact that there's always somebody out there better, cheaper, faster building something right now in the marketplace. But in order for somebody to come take my business away from me, they will have to crawl up a wall of 20,000 raving fans before they even touch the product part of it. So he considered that to be their greatest moat mm. of what built their business. And when you think about that, that level of commitment to it, he said, we as an executive team signed a 10-year commitment internally to do inbound. So for 10 years, no matter what, they would be doing inbound. This was like seven years ago when I talked to him about this. And I think that's the level of commitment. I think most people who are infatuated with the idea of category, they look at that as a, a means to an end, and I want to just start it and I want to get it because it's awesome. But most people who actually start it, they are committed. They can't think about any other way. There's no Plan B around it, and I feel like we forget that part of the the crazy level of commitment it takes at the founder CEO level to say. I don't care if we don't have money. Like, I mean, I can share what we, how we started at Terminus. We didn't have anything. And, and you know, I'll share how, why, and that's why we started with the community first as opposed to anything else. But I think if somebody was going to jump in and say, I want to go do that, I'll say like, are you committed for the next 10 years of your life to do this? That's a question for you to answer.
1: You no, know, and I, I think most people hear the word community or even events that you might put together for a community. They automatically think about marketing. And maybe they think about the CMO, but maybe they might even go lower or think about a marketing manager or a community manager. And they think about these ideas as these very kind of tactical or departmentalized types of efforts. And I know you believe very strongly, as you alluded to a moment ago, that these efforts need to be a strategic CEO level type of commitment. Why do you think that is that that commitment isn't always made at that executive level and these community and event type efforts get? kind of relegate it down to, you know, a department or a, a team within a department of an organization?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think most people are pro- afraid to make that level of bet, quite frankly, to it, they don't know what it means to build a category, really, like if you think about and under measure, still today, fully involved in inbound. Brian, you know, Salesforce, like, you know, Mark Benef is fully involved in Dreamforce. It's not a marketing initiative. So it has to, it, it really requires that level of understanding that, oh, this is how it is. So like, I'll share Terminus, like early days of Terminus. So it was me, Eric Spett and Eric Vast, like just three co-founders. We were at the Atlanta Tech Village, three of us, you know, just sharing a desk like that. We had no funding really. and And we just started off and we were just sitting there thinking, okay, we're an Atlanta-based company. Sitting in Atlanta, in Atlanta, try to do this thing. How is how is anybody going to pay attention to us? We have no funding, no message. Like, you know, what do we do? And and I remember just writing this this blog article saying that, hey, what if what if the way we think about marketing and sales is wrong and it's flipped? And and I created this idea of flip my funnel, and it was just an idea. That's all it is, and I put it out in the world. and, and this was like 2015, so five people liked it, so it went viral. Right? Like clearly, in <laughs> our know, 2015 time frame, I was and- one of them, by the way. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, you remember, right? So you're one of the five and my mom. So five people and people it, 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 I mean, people said, "Oh, this is really cool." And at that, that day, I went and bought the domain, Flipmyfunnel.com, and just bought it. and I said, "Okay, we'll just start writing it." But then I went to oh, t- eight to 10 different companies and saying, "Hey, you know what, we want to do an event. Saying we need to change something and it, it will be on terminus.com slash events and it will do, we uh, will have you all come up here. And they're like, why would I sponsor your event? Like, makes no sense for me to do that. And so none of them said yes. So three months later, Flip My Funnel website was fully ready. And we said, okay, we reached out to the same eight to 10 people and said, hey, all right, the event is called Flip My Funnel. It is all about challenging the status quo of marketing and sales. You get to do a keynote at this event, each one of you, regardless of your competitor or not, all like eight of six of them were quasi competitors. If they were not, I was was explaining them that you should be our competitor. Like I wanted competition in the marketplace for the category because there is no such thing as category of one. We can dig into that in, in a second, but I wanted six to eight people over there. So I reached out to all of them And I said, you all get to do a keynote. We're going to do an event in Atlanta. You all get to have a booth. We all get to have a booth. As long as nobody does a sales pitch, we're all good. And everybody said, okay, sure, we'll give it a try. So all of them signed up. All of them paid for it. So we had a $0 cost. So the first year when we did the first event, we had $0 out of our pocket. It was our time and energy around that. We had no marketing person. The only marketing person was like, was a halftime marketer who ran the event. Like that's all was our marketing. That was the entire go-to-market was that halftime person. And we built that event and about 350 people showed up to that event. And that, that became the event that became the first flip path for our event. And all of a sudden before leaving each one of them, including the competitors said, Hey, when is the next event? And we're like, oh, next event sounds like a great idea. And that's when we started doing every three to six months another event. And we did like four events in the first year. But all that idea really started with that I what with that flip my funnel as a new thing, nothing to do with our company, is something different. And even the people who are our competitors on the stage, they looked at that as well, this this is gonna help me great brand. We're all together. It's only going to cost me ten to fifteen grand. That's you know awesome, and I'm going to get three hundred net new leads, and I get to do a keynote. So, we checked a bunch of boxes for a lot of them, and that's how it all really started. So, it started with building this huge community around it that didn't cost us a dime, and allowed us to own the narrative in the marketplace all at the same time. And so, it was much easier afterwards when people would say, "Well, we love the idea of changing the status quo." And clearly, we know you're behind it. Tell us what to do. So it was a much better sales call than doing an outbound sales call for us, right? And then it was much better sales process as a result of it. So it all started with the problem that we couldn't get a voice in the marketplace. And the only way we thought we could get a marketplace voice was creating something on our own, but we didn't have any money at a startup. So the only way we thought how to do this was to bring other people together and say, can you pay for it? And as long as we will do the hard work Everybody was okay with it. And that cannot that cannot be a marketing initiative. Like that is that has to be a founder level, CEO level commitment conversation for that level of trust to to flow through for others to to buy into.
1: Yeah. So so you, you had a, a playbook that worked really well at that period of time. And so what I wanted to ask you to do next thing is walk us through what the startup landscape was like at the time, the just the economic landscape. And then contrast that with today. And tell us, would you do anything different? Or maybe you do everything exactly the same. I'm just curious to hear why and like how your perspective has evolved.
3: Well, if this was 2014, 2015 timeframe the It was great time, like the market was up and up. So doing yep. something, market and money to do, no big deal. Trust was super important, although like it will always be. What was... Different at that time was people are okay to have these love like big events, and they were waiting for stuff like this to happen. So it was very different time.
1: What do you um, mean when you say they were waiting for things? Like there was there, an absence there, of that this type of thing that kind of a void. Yeah.
3: There was nothing around ABM, so this was this is also timing of things. So marketing automation has been there for eight ten years. People mm. were, this was 2014, 2015, where it was just enough time where people are like, well, what's next? Am I going to mm. just send another mindless set of emails to people and call them the best marketing program in the world? Or is there a better way? And and so the timing of us coming up and saying, hey, it's time to challenge the status quo of how companies go to market was, was really important and interesting. So there was a lot of latch on, hey, there is intent coming up. There is a new ways of going to market. So all of those things are just, Popping up, PLG was getting getting some interest. So there was new ways that companies were thinking about it, and they were looking for a way to get that information. And if we all were doing our own thing in a sallow way, we wouldn't have got that much market. Uh, another fun fact on that one was we even invited a analyst firms with us. So Topo and Sears Decisions were the two analyst firms at that time, and they both attended every one of our roadshows, every one of those events, and that allowed to have now the analyst is there competitor is there, market share is there. So guess what? Media is there and they're writing about this. So all of a sudden it created the groundswell movement around like, wait a minute, this is a real category. There are like 10 companies speaking about it. There is analyst edit talking about it. There's media who's writing about it. So it it created, a lot of people think, well, how do I create a category? Well, one, there's no such thing as category of one. So make sure you're not the only one talking about it. Like it's really, really important to note that. And two, get all these people alongside, like you get an analyst, you get a media setup, and you get four or five companies. That's the beginning of it. Then people will start paying attention to it. I see a lot of people saying, well, we are the best product in the world. Nobody cares. Like really nobody cares about it. But if you say, no, this is a new way to do something and we have some cool stuff that we can show, then people can start paying attention
2: to it. It's interesting that the it goes against the grain of thinking like I go back. I've been in the startup world since the 90s and back in the 90s to think, oh, I'm going to invite my competitors to, to my first event would be like, you know, people would look at you like you're crazy. It just wouldn't you wouldn't operate that way. And then today it is exactly the right strategy. You want your competitors there. You want everybody to validate your category vision. Because if you're the one organizing everybody and you're, you're, you know, evangelizing the category point of view and your competitors are standing there saying, oh my gosh, I want to be there with you. And analysts are saying, I want to hear the story. It just, it, it, it completely builds the foundation for the category. And that's what it's all about. We, we had a recording last week. I think the episode is going to be live in about two or three weeks with a Gartner analyst and the he he basically said the exact same thing. He said, start talking to us early. Yeah. You don't need money to talk to Gartner. What you need is courage and you need to just get there and and start the conversation. And same thing with building a a category, you know, through, through events or through community, you know, bring those guys along you know, get them involved and get them talking about you as soon as you can.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, Devin, you, you the other part that, that, that aligns with is like, we had no money. <laughs> like this wasn't a choice. Like for us, we had like, we wanted. we have a bold idea, but we had no money. I don't know if anybody else has that problem, but that was the problem that, that we were, we were at. And it'd be, you know, John, your question of like, what, what would we do today? I feel like like most companies are like like that right now. <laughs> they have, don't have a lot of money sitting around, and they have they should really think about that. You really have no choice if you either you be a part of a category and and latch onto it and and harvest demand out of it, or you create demand. There are only two ways. You just have to choose mm-hmm. which way. There's not no wrong wrong answer to it. Like most calls I get, and they said we want to build a category like you guys did. We would, I say, no. Until they come back to me three times and they said, no, I really want to do it. And here's why. I'm like, you got to really believe in what you're talking about. But we didn't go out and started thinking that that's what we were doing. And that's part of what it is, I feel like we started doing it because that was our go-to market. That is how we knew we are going to get our message in the marketplace. And every time we did a flip my funnel event, we would close about 10 to 20 sometimes deals coming out of it. Because we were just built like, and just like Dam said, they knew who were behind this event. They understood our keynote. We were setting the narrative. We were getting the stage. We were telling, we were inviting all these people. Invitations were going. We had the list of people who were attending. We had a pre-booked set of meetings. So we played by the rules to make sure it's 100% fair. But we had a clearly uh, a bigger advantage because we were all in with this. This wasn't a stra- a, a strategy. It was the strategy for us. It was the strategy in that the whole year, we did nothing. We didn't have a, our terminus.com at that time website had like nothing on it. Everything was on floodmyfunnel.com And we were focused on mm-hmm. this because it was closing deals for us. We didn't even have salespeople or anything like that. We were doing calls afterwards and telling people how to do this stuff. So a year later is when we got funding and we started to, to do that stuff. But that was the way to go.
1: Cool. I just want to ask one quick yeah. follow-up on that. And then Paul, Paul's got a good question to ask you too. At that time, like events and community, they were still kind of novel, to a degree. Is there any sort of like event fatigue or community fatigue that people should be aware of? Is that something that's on your mind?
3: Now, yeah, now, now, yeah. So, if somebody's going to create another Slack group, yeah, like that's that's over fatigued, right? Like you know, but like with GTM partners, like we're we're building our own research advisory firm on go to market and we do road shows we we did 12 road shows in the last year and a half and these roadshows shows are 50 to 60 people in different cities director and above so i'm doing the same playbook now that i've learned how to do this side but i'm doing it at director and above level go to market executives because that's because it's a transformation change that people need to bring in their organization teaching the ro- the the six go to market motions and how to think about that so we do that in every different uh, city, and we have sponsors who support that. We have no we don't spend a dime on on running those events, but they every single time we do that, we get five to ten customers coming out of it because they learn. And that's the other part of it is that it's as long as it's not a sales pitch, you gotta move people to make sure that they're able to see that I want to go to this promised land, whatever they're talking about. I want that. I need that. I think that's the part like most of the time these events don't have. They don't have an anchor uh, of thought. So in our case, we latched onto a stat that Forrester came out with that says less than 1% of the leads turn into customers. We just latched on it. I'm like, look, most companies are having really bad marketing and sales. So bad that it's less than 1% of your deals of, of the conversation you're having are turning into customers. You want to be on the right side of history. So something got to change. And let us introduce you the Flip My Funnel. Right? So it was a narrative that allowed people to anchor on a problem that was emotionally enough that was questioning their very identity as a marketer or a sales individual. And they're like, well, I better figure this thing out because this is, there's no good way out of this. This is only bad. There's only worse. So what is the new thing? So everybody's eager on the edge of their seats to figure out what the next thing is we never gave a full-on solution for it. We gave a framework, we gave a view, we gave a strategy, we gave an idea that allowed people to say, you know what, let me jump into it more and deepen it and let me learn more about it. So that level of anchoring is needed for a category. Like a lot of times people would just come up with really cool names for the category with really no problem statement at the base of it, right? So so that's really important for a category to be real.
0: Sangram, so, I've been I've been dying to hear you talk about this stuff. And I'm sure that some of the folks that have shown up here want to get in on this conversation if you're experiencing this. So if you if you have questions, if you want to talk with us, raise your hand. I'll call on you, bring you up in the put the spotlight on, get you involved in the conversation for a question or two. But in the meantime, while I while I indulge in this, you are you right now kind of landed us like square into category land, right? Like you are you are talking about identifying a context shift that creates a missing thing that creates this problem for people that's existential and you're evangelizing it and you're creating a community around this thing and you're creating content to educate them and all this stuff. But like Monica says in the chat, it's all super counterintuitive because most folks that I speak to at least when you say category design, they think, Takes a ton of money. It has to be venture backed. When you talk about community, people think, well, you got to create a whole bunch of content to build an audience that then you can build a community that then you can create a category around this. And they also think this is only for tech scale startups, right? And you're out here telling us that you've not only applied these concepts without money, you have gone community first to then content and category and on top of that you've done this as a scale up software startup paid for community and you which we haven't touched on right peak community and and you're not doing this for a service business and i guess my question is what are people missing like what is the what is the what is the missing dot to connect here when we're talking about this playbook of get everybody in a room, join your list together to throw an event, get people to sponsor it, put them together. What are the what are the infill gaps? Like, what is the organization that you have to build around it? What is the cadence of of things that you need to do in between these things to make this stuff work?
3: Well, you know when you when I get a, a you know, flashback in life, like you just <laughs> walk me through, like oh, you've done that for Terminus and then Peak and now GTM Partners. You know, it, it, when you, when I take take a look back and, and see this, I think the most common thing is be, before we get to the organizational element is the reason it feels probably Monica to your maybe to your point, um, it, it looks counterintuitive and almost expensive in some cases of time or energy or resources. I I've, I, I feel the urge to reiterate that there is no plan B. For someone who actually sees that the way the market needs to shape like for example can we imagine steve jobs let's like, just elevate it from like my level and just get to the the highest possible level to it could we imagine somebody let's like, say steve jobs doing anything but that and talk about it the way he did or mark benioff's of the world and others right Like so when you think about when i think about in our own Area like but now like bringing from there to like our own whichever different uh, area that each one of us is playing in. It's the problem for me from going from start doing ABM and it being the evangelist like the literally that became my title as the chief evangelist is because I couldn't imagine talking about anything else in the market. I couldn't imagine that the world would be any uh, would be better without what we are doing in and from a framework and a philosophy perspective, not even product. Like we hardly, we hardly ever talked about product. Even as a matter of fact, I mean this again is like terminus wasn't even mentioned anywhere in the website or anywhere like that. Like it it was at the bottom somewhere. So but where does it come from? Because that's a very I hear when it, when I hear it and understand it's so counterintuitive is because the the idea of for me personally, the idea my company is more important than the problem I'm solving is very foreign to me. The, the problem has to be way bigger than the company that we are running. So because of that, I imagined that there would be 100,000 jobs one day of company, of people doing ABM. Like that was our manifesto when we wrote about it. We imagine a world where there would be hundreds of thousands of jobs, out there in the marketplace, doing account-based marketing, as an example, they reimagine that companies will create technologies that are far greater than what we have ever imagined. Beginning this because you got to solve this problem of one percent turning into customers. Like we cannot, we can, we shouldn't. We said we should say no to to a world like that, right? So there is a very evangelistic view of the problem that has to be owned, and when you own that. I feel like you would find yourself in a place. At least we found ourselves in a place where there is no option B. That this is this is the way to go. So I just wanted to touch on that. Just why it became so evangelistic for you to anyone to do it for the next eight to ten years. I think you have to own that problem at, at its core.
2: Uh, I, what what I find really really fascinating is when we talk like this. Right, we're all having this conversation. It, it it's not so obvious so i'm going to point it out you don't talk about brand at all it's like the brand is just a tattoo that's left behind and people remember that that's your brand right and people are so focused on themselves that they they it takes all their energy away from what's really important which is get the people to realize the problem you're solving for them yeah. And if they do, they're going to remember that you were there to save them. Yeah. And that's the most important part of category design, I, I believe.
3: Yeah. No, well, a thousand percent, down I'll like, echo that. And I think that's that's how you'll have the energy to keep doing it year over year and longer and and be with uh, and bring competitors to and, and not to worry about because the reason we never worried about that, we were like, well, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen that this will be a blown out category, and they might get some of our customers that we would have but we would have never had a chance to get those customers to begin with, if we didn't have a category to play in. So, so it's 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 a self fulfilling prophecy of how we think about things. And then from an organizational perspective, I feel like the reason this has to be at the highest level because you, you, this would be a sec, somebody's job to, like for example, I ran the FlipMan for events like owned that area of it with the team, FlipMaffle wrote books on it uh, and then ran a daily podcast on FlipMaffle. Like I did all, so it was a full on go-to-market strategy for six years of our existence. So we created over a thousand episodes on FlipMaffle, like a thousand. Like it's not one or two. So so we were just like a thousand episodes on this one topic bringing competitors, analysts, media, any and everybody who wants to talk, we will give you a voice and we will push you forward, right? Because we want that's the The first person who got the ABM job, we celebrated like crazy and put them on a pedestal, made them like, you know, promoted to the, you should be the LinkedIn voice or something like that, made them heroes in the marketplace. We created awards. Like there's no such thing as a category without awards. So we created the first awards for called ABMEs and did a red carpet award gala at the, one of our road shows at Flip are called ABMEs. And once you get an award, even today, I'll get pictures from people, hey, that award has never left my desk, right? Like it meant something to them. And it was a glass, like heavy metal, not like from Kinko's, like, you know, like really real award, like, you know, that's sitting on your desk that people keep it and they want to. put. So like it's it's all about not even the customers, it's the people, who are pushing the boundaries out there because that's what you want. You you want the early adopters to push the boundaries and then we kind of get to it. So organizationally, the reason it has to be at the CEO founder level is because there are going to be elements of it that it will become somebody's job. And as soon as it becomes somebody's job, it becomes an item on the list of things. And as soon as if I have to choose between, should I do a podcast versus I need to write a sales copy for my SDR team. The sales copy for SDR team internally would always take the priority. And the podcast that seemed to be a, a you know add-on or something that may or may not have impact or whatever in people's mind would go secondary, right? And so you got to make sure that that doesn't happen ever, because that's what, what happens in most organizations. We have so many internal struggles. The new people getting into the organization, they're like, so you've been doing flip from, from three years. We don't even have our name in it. We had a new VC come in and they put a bunch of money and they had no idea how we have got to the place where we have. And the first thing they said, well, it has to be a terminus event if you're good. I'm like, no, it's not going to be a ter- like, so we had to fight internally to, to push boundaries around it because not everybody's going to get it. I
0: love it, man. It actually reminds me of when I first met Peak Community and you had, Lockhead and, 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 and Ramadan and these guys, you talked about the awards and how you don't have, you know, if you don't have awards, you don't have a category, but what I've, what I've noticed from you, Sangram, and I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Glenn here next. So I'm going to bring you up on the screen, but what I've noticed from you, that is really obvious that I'm hearing in your description to this, it's, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, you really do need one main evangelist that is willing to really, you know, Not a mercenary, but a missionary that's willing to just like put their life on the line for this category, for this problem, for this change in the world with the idea that the moment that somebody else looks like they're ready to grab the torch and run with it you pass the baton to them and you're like the first guy giving them a shove and you're platforming them on the platform that you work so hard to build to me yeah. is a thing that I've really admired. And the thing that I see over and over on, on what's working these days, man, I really admire the way that you've been able to do that. Glenn, speaking of which Glenn, your turn to be on the platform, man. Why don't you, why don't yeah. you ask him, this is your question? Oh,
4: thank you so much. This is, gosh, this is, this has been awesome. I mean, so inspiring. Thank you so much. Yeah, Glenn here with Inara, co-founder and CEO. And for consumers who reject whole content, product purchase, subscription, and advertising, and content providers who lose audience and revenue, uh, we track content micro consumption and we monetize that. So li- you literally only pay for what you consume. Uh, we just uh, took on HubSpot uh, because we recognize you know the importance of getting this flywheel going. Uh, We're just getting started with it, uh, with that. But, you know, talking about using content in an event context, this is is freaking brilliant, guys, a great model. But for our company, what advice can you offer to evangelize and better own the problem, getting buy-in? And what's that equation, I guess you could call it, for or balance in getting buy-in from our customers? Because we have both consumers and we have content providers thanks yeah
3: yeah yeah of course and i know like damp and john and you know like you know pablo i'm sure you guys have like frameworks upon frameworks for, for for stuff like what glenn is talking about i can share from my experience perspective if if your problem is crystal clear where you could just articulate that and people will get it like, you know, when we, and, and we didn't have our, like, we didn't have a problem statement until we we're like, oh, that problem, less than 1% from Forrester sounds really good. So we just owned it. Like, you know, we, we didn't try to act smart. We just tried to say what's real and take it and run with it. So I think if your problem is crystal clear, and if your consumers and customers, when you put it in front of them, they literally jump out of their seats and say, and they had this visceral reaction to say, I want that. I, I need to know more about this thing. I think then, you know, you're onto something once you have that, I feel Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how you end up creating community. Like there are lots of community who are, could be created through events, which is what my, because this is how I've felt always. Like if you spend three hours with somebody at an event, the chances of they becoming your long-term loyal customer and fan and supporter and you becoming theirs is way high, like way, way, way high. So Mm -hmm. I have a personal premium on events. Because it just puts you in a room for a very deep conversation and a longer customer relationship than anything else I've ever seen happen. So this idea of roadshow or this idea of being in front of the customer. So at, at, for example, at GTM Partners, the beauty of these roadshows, because they're small and intimate, I meet half of my customers almost every single month. So it changes the dynamics of what we can do together and it turns into a customer to a partner right it just elevates the relationship to a to a new level so as you start thinking about the crystal clear problem around it that's one part of the formula the way your customers actually can engage maybe they love events maybe they love online community maybe they they are they're different so whatever that is a second piece of it mm-hmm. where can i engage the early adopters and put them on a pedestal and yeah. put them in a way that like well here are the 10 people who are changing the way things that's not here is It was never, here's Terminus, how it is changing the way. It is here are the 10 people who are actually changing the way B2B is run and marketing is run. So putting those first 10 evangel, making them the biggest heroes in the marketplace. And as Pablo mentioned, I feel like every category gotta have their own individual set of awards. Like that is such a, a, uh, it's, it's so crazy to me, companies don't do that. They have category, oh, we have been, we have been building this category for 10 years and there's not a single award. A category actually becomes real as soon as it's an award. It's weird. People don't get it, the importance of that. So in your own thing, if you're changing the way people are thinking about, create your awards, create your own series of, of ways to say that, oh, man, these folks have done. That's why Emmys Amy's is so big, right? You know, all this stuff is because people love awards. People love to be recognized. And if you can figure out a way to do that, the formula for me is the figure out your problem, figure out the best path to engage and figure out an award that connects all of it that turns into a real category.
4: Oh that's that oh wow wow that's 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 great. Yeah acknowledgement is such a powerful force in relationships. I mean you nailed it man yeah so and so you're doing live events and virtual events or how's that sort of progressed?
3: Yeah we we have done we do every month in a different city there's a we do this live live oh, event. Right. Okay, and then we do once a quarter big event. We call it the leadership summit, where we have a thousand people show up every time we do it. So we don't do that that often. We want to do that only when we when it makes sense on a bigger topic. So we do that every quarter. But I've seen companies do something every week, every other week. They have chapters. They have all. so, so it really depends upon where you're. This is also another thing. I'm glad you asked this question. I'm an, I'm inherently a marketing person right like that's that's you know that, that's part of me. So I love this type of area so I can put all of my energy in it. So don't do what we do because it may not make sense for you if you can't put that energy into events, you rather and it's better for you and you get energy and you know your customers get energy some other way, then go do that for you. it might mean to do a virtual event every month or every week or every quarter or however else and less physical event and only once a year. Most yeah. companies never do physical events, or if they do, they do it once a year. I I just have found I do it every month because I feel like in a different city with different people, the cumulative impact of the relationship far transcends the the cost of the event and the the work that's needed. So to me, that's how it works. Yeah. And,
4: and finally, just, just one last thing. And 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 that is around getting to the problem. And I and I sort of I stated a, a problem in a in a sentence there. But, you know, the thing that we're discovering is that we have to keep digging deeper. Yeah. We have to keep digging deeper on this problem. And we're finding that in addition to sort of the the problem of content consumption and payment and all that stuff, and there's a huge problem around that. In my conversations, I'm discovering it's also about delight and the the delight that people have in, in consuming content that. Makes a difference in their lives, yeah. And so, what's standing in that way, anyway? And i was just wondering if you had a comment on that.
3: I mean, it sounds like you're solving a real problem that that can go as far as as it, it possibly can. The, the The challenge would be that it's not too too elusive, where people don't <laughs> feel like it is. Right? Like it's it's it, you know you have to get to a point where it's like. It's a. It's no longer a vitamin. It's not not a good to have. It's like dem- it's 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 actual painkiller. It's sure. a real thing that is. If I don't have this tomorrow, and if I don't figure it out, I'm gonna lose my job. Like that's the level yeah. of problem <laughs> push. Yeah, you know that that's the part. If if that yeah. doesn't change, if I don't do, I can't pay my mortgage. If I don't do it, I'm gonna lose my marriage. Like it's it. If you really look at problems, like it has to be at that level. The opposite of that is at a level where it says. Oh, it would be a great idea to have clean energy. Like, you know, the, you know, we, we all it's so far for most people that they don't know. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I'm behind it. But it sounds like a 2050 goal. I need to do my job in 2023 or 2024. So it can be so far off that you're like, oh, that's a great idea yeah. on your train with you when you get there. But yeah. oh, tomorrow, I want you on this tomorrow.
4: Right, right. Thank you,
0: thank you so much, uh, Glenn. I would also say, coming coming from a, a similar want to solve similar things with similar solutions, right? And and being a little familiar with your company, what is and having gone, through, you know, I've been on your show and I've and I've seen how well you guys repurpose and make the con- micro content and promote others. I think behind all of Sangram's words of a the you know getting it closer to the adjacent possible. And and what the jump that people can make that they see is really, really mm-hmm. valuable is the idea that insight gathering is the name of the game. This whole like progression thing that he says is basically like gathering insights and iterating on how to make it, you know, sound like a not sound, but like understand where the painkiller is, like mm-hmm. take out the vitamins and where's the painkiller in this equation, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think is why going to meet people and or. In your process of how you onboard and distribute content and whatnot, building in specific moments where you are gathering insights and testing out the point of view versus just having a conversation, there needs to be a part of that, right? Like always promoting other people is great, but you also need to get a part where you're understanding whether you are right or wrong in whether your beliefs intersect and whether they are painkillers or not is something that I've iterated through as well. Thank you so much. All right, Monica, had you waiting for a while there. Can't wait to hear what you have to say.
5: Yeah, thank you, Sangram. That was very valuable for me. And as always, Pablo, these, these sessions always have my mind just, I go into overwhelm kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the thing you said about creating an event that is not really focused on sales, but on getting the message out there, it makes so much sense and still it's so counterintuitive because it's what everyone is telling you not to do, right? It's everyone I talk to is this is the way you do it focus on sales and it kind of goes against what I feel like doing. So, so that was very valuable. My what I have been struggling with is that I am a one woman show. I realized as I started listening to the podcast that I have been evangelizing to the villain, which doesn't really work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'm starting to find the language that people actually say, I want that.
3: Yeah, that's great.
5: And I don't need to create a category for me to have clients but i feel that there needs to be a shift Mm -hmm. in the industry that i'm working because people are doing things the wrong way and it's costing a lot of people a lot of energy and money and burnout and like it's just wrong right
2: yep yep
5: but no one is talking about it so would it be can one person create a shift that could benefit like a whole industry? Would it be even worth it? Because I don't need it for me. But I feel like, I need, like there are people that need it. And yeah. people are trying to, when I talk to people about, there are more people than me doing what I do, right? But they say, yeah, but this is how we say it, because this is how everyone is talking about what we do.
1: Hmm.
5: and it's actually hurting people. So there would be like a bigger thing, a bigger shift that needs to happen. And it's not about me and what I do. It's about what the people out there, yeah, the painkiller. So how do I do that as a one woman show?
3: Well, first and foremost, let me just address your overwhelming, like part of getting overwhelmed or feeling like that. Because uh, if in 2014, if I knew what I would do, I would be overwhelmed. Like, you know, like there's just no way we, we just did one event. And then at the end of the event, people said, hey, when is the next event that led us to a roadshow? We did, did. We started a then a year and a and six months later, we we're like, you know what? We better own the narrative on this thing in a bigger way. So why not write a book? Because we have so much content created on it from all of these things. So that led to writing books. Never ever before I wrote a single book, so the whole book was to build a business, and now to drive terminus, and and now I've written three books. So if somebody, if you would have told me ten years ago saying we're going to write three books and one of the books is going to be you know bestseller, Wall Street, like I was like you crazy, like there's no way. But it's it's really taking that you know step in faith of saying I'm just really focused on this problem and let me just start here. Same thing with podcasts. If you're saying, oh, thousand episodes, I'm sure it sounds overwhelming, but it was consistently just doing one a week and then finding, oh, we can actually partner up and do five a day. Great. Like, so so don't look at anything I said as a checklist of things to do. Rather, it's just a, if anything, it's like, okay, there is a way to do it without a whole lot of budget, without a whole lot of things to do with by, by figuring out how do I anchor on a problem? Do I have the right problem? Is there a right venue to do that? Maybe there's already events that are happening. You need to plug in instead of you creating one. And if there's none, you will end up creating one in some way, shape, or form or fashion in there. And then ultimately leading that into, if you stay focused on the problem and clear on that one, and if you don't find all of those things, you'll end up finding finding different ways to sell. So I think just overwhelming element of it, I totally hear you. And I feel like if you look at the reason, that's why when Damp was saying, when we look at Salesforce, of course, Salesforce, but that's not how Salesforce started either. And when we look at their story, it's not how they all started at all. So that's one part of it. The second is as one person said, I had a half a marketer. We didn't even have a person, right? We have a half a person who was running this stuff. And it was literally, we had no money. So we just essentially ran on the sponsorship dollars to run all the events. I think at one event cost us hundred dollars, and we we're like, okay, why is this so event so expensive? <laughs> because it was hundred dollar over the hundred thousand dollar that we spent on it. But the hundred thousand dollar came from all the other sponsors. So we we're like, so we were like that. Like, is there a way to make money on this thing? Like, so we we and then we had to argue ourselves out of it. No, no, no. This is not about making money on the event. It's about so so we had to constantly adjust and 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 be honest to the reason why we're doing it. And so it might sound all overwhelming when you look at it in aggregate, because you're looking at a sum total of what happened over eight years, but every month and every day, it was just one new thing or one additional thing in the same direction. I think if there was one thing I would say, take away from this is, is there a way that you can more go in one direction as an individual for the same exact reason that there's only one person where you're messaging your problem-solving ability, your events, your thought leadership out in the marketplace, your conversations, everything is aligned to this one thing. That honestly is the biggest thing that worked for us. It was one thing. If anybody knew us, they knew us for Flip My Phone.
5: And a question on that. I finally got around to reading the uh, Play Bigger book. And it's all about tech and it's like, there's one, right? There's Apple and then everyone else falls behind. And that's for tech. But I'm thinking in the industry that I am, that's not tech. There could potentially, you said there's not just one category.
3: Category one, yeah.
5: Yeah. So so that would then it would make sense to build a community and have other thought leaders kind of do you create the revolution with you instead of being the one person.
3: Yeah, you could, and I'll, I'll let Dan and John and you know Pablo answer more more specifically how how they yeah, have read Playboy and and obviously recognizing when you're a category leader, you get to make your own rules. Like that's the point of being a cat. You said you set your own price. You get to set your own way of doing things and people would follow because you're the leader, right? Like that's part of it. It will still, I think it still applies in in your case. If you end up being the person who actually is gonna point people to it and if there are other people who want, they might say, you know what? I want to partner with you. I'm going to resell stuff with you. I want to do, I want your endorsement on the stuff that I do. So all of a sudden there's new markets that are created that you may not even think about today because you're looking at things. thing. So, but it only happens when you open up the aperture of what's possible as a full-on category. Otherwise, it's really hard to see all that today because you're, you're looking at like one problem at a time.
5: Yeah. Things are opening up as I'm learning more as well.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Monica.
0: Thanks for that, Monica. Real, real quick, Sangram, I know I don't, I, I, you answer long questions, but Brian was with us. He had to leave, but he left us a question from Brian Wade saying, How do you determine a compelling theme or content for the event with competitors if the sales pitch is banned from the event? Like, how do you determine content that's compelling to analysts, audience, media, you know, your first go around?
3: Yeah. Yeah. We literally gave them this one clear thing is like, it has got to be all about challenging the status quo of marketing and sales. Like that was the only ask we had of them. And we would look at the deck if we didn't see that and they could still say something. And people, you know, people, people are people. They're going to do what they do. Your job is to get enough guard around it where you can cover 90% of the bases and you'll always have the 10% who go over the fence. So we, we said, well, this has to be all about this particular idea. but to challenge the status quo. So you can show and tell and guide any and everything around how the future of marketing and sales got to be. And that's what's the ask. So we, we kind of forced them in that and we did a review before they, you know, for the first men, But after the first event, we never had to do it after that because people got the idea. We And we led with example. If we would have even once dropped the name Terminus, or we have dropped and said, "Hey, and by the way, here's our uh, thing." And then, they, and if you would have done that magic trick like that, we would have lost all credibility. And 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 there is no, you cannot create this if you're not authentic. Like that's the part that will be so clear and transparent that oh, these guys are full of it. Like people would will smell that. out.
0: Yeah, I've seen that trick before too. Greg Kenny, you are uh, our last question of the day, my friend. Close us out here.
6: Thank you. I'll try to make this short. First of all, great stuff, guys. These are always good and helpful. It's been more of a validation for me, um, working towards uh, some category design, a project that, that me and a partner are working on currently. And so these are more just comments and, than questions. Brian's question, I think something that I would maybe point out to him, if, if I were to answer is Eddie Yoon, who I'm sure you guys know has said, you know, we fear, and and to Monica's point, a lot of times we we share a lot of these ideas and our passions to people that are you know, in a different category. We're trying to create a different category. We don't don't realize it, but we're trying to convince them to come to our side and and see things from our perspective. And it's it's just falling on deaf ears. And I did that for years and years. And I think you know the the, the one thing that I would do is. Uh, I I love the ideas. I call it finding your tribe. Who out there believes what I believe? I am pretty much a one-man show as well. And I I can't do it on my own. I need partners. I need to build an ecosystem. So who are those folks? So I think the uh, e-publishing a book, doing a podcast, those things are great ideas. I love the event, hosting an event, finding those super consumers. The point I was going to make about what Eddie Yoon said, I was paralyzed for years because I thought, it, well, if I share my ideas to people, somebody's going to steal the idea. Yeah. And he said, you know, the difference difference between missionary and mercenary mindset, you know, the more missionary you are, the less you really care about somebody stealing your idea. And it, it, it all goes back to what you were saying, Sangra, about authenticity. If you were to host an event, you were to do a podcast, and it's like if you have lived, you know, out this passion and, and try, you know, people that resonates with people that have that problem. Yeah. And that to me is how you find your tribe is you've got to get out there and evangelize the problem. And, and what's been helpful for me today is just identifying what are some tactical ways that you can actually do that. Um, when you're a one man show and you don't have a lot of resources and a lot of money, um, feel free to reach out to me, Monica, cause I may be just a, you know, a couple of months ahead of your journey category design, I believe absolutely is, 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 I I I feel. I mean, I come from the tech industry, so I really got it when I read "Play Bigger," but it really is is applicable to any industry.
0: Greg, did you? I appreciate you jumping in, man, and I appreciate you offering that advice. Did you have a question? Because we're we're trying to wrap here at two thirty. Yeah, sorry, I I I didn't have a question. I just wanted to offer (laughs) comments. I love it. I love it. Well, we appreciate it. This has absolutely lived up to, uh, to my wishes, right? I wouldn't even say expectations, Sangram. But I really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate everybody that takes an hour of their day to to be here. We know that time is the the one finitely limited resource, so we don't take it lightly. And we're really encouraged by the fact that you show up that you ask these questions and we can't do it without amazing, amazing guests like Sangram that A, attract you to it and then deliver on the promise of this of this great conversation. So Sangram, thanks a million for, for making yourself available and for what you got to do. Any, any final words for us?
3: I think it's not for the faint of hearts. If you're an entrepreneur and doing this, you already know, know that. I, I have a quote that I share and feel believe passionately is that being intentional is more important than being brilliant. And I've said that a lot recently, and I've reminded of myself to, about that. I think we all want to be brilliant uh, in our ideas and thoughts, but I've never, I, I've never overestimated the ability of somebody who's intentional. And when you're intentional on a problem for a period of time, you are miles ahead of everybody else who's just trying to be brilliant. So that's, that's the part that I feel this whole thing is about at the end of the day.
2: That, that was intentionally brilliant.
3: I'll <laughs> take that, Tim.
2: <laughs> thanks, Sangram. Thank you so much. All right. All right yeah. Thanks. All. Have a good one. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sangram.
0: There you go. Another conversation designed to help you think like a category designer. Please support our sponsors, categorydesignadvisors.com and live, because they're the ones footing the bill for this thing so you can enjoy it. But more than anything, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether it's in our community, or if you could leave us a review for this podcast if you're enjoying this thing, subscribe to it, hit five stars, let us know what you think. We could really, really use that. And don't forget, stop just listening to this thing. Join the conversation by going to CategoryThinkers.com, joining the free Slack community, and come meet the other 500 plus category designers just like you. See you in there.